Hi everyone, Dan Cassidy here. Welcome to the Fixed Income Conversation Corner on the UBS Market Moves podcast channel. For today's conversation, I am joined by Leslie Falconio, Managing Director and Head of Taxable Fixed Income Strategy Americas from the UBS Chief Investment Office, as well as glad to welcome Jim Karen of Morgan Stanley Investment Management. Jim is a Managing Director, Portfolio Manager, and Head of Global Macro Strategies on the Global Fixed Income Team for Morgan Stanley Investment management. Leslie, Jim, it's great to be with you both. Thank you for spending some time with our listeners, our clients. Uh, Leslie, I'll pass it over to you to lead today's conversation with Jim. Thank you. Thanks, Dan. And, and thank you, Jim. I really appreciate you coming on. And, you know, for those of you just from prior to this podcast, Jim and, I, Jim and I were reminiscing that he and I have known each other for over 25 years. So when we think about all the market volatility that we've been through in that 25-year period, it's, it's great to have him on and and particularly at a time like this. So, Jim, I, I just, I really want to just get started and, and dive in. I mean, you know, when we think about, you know, volatility and actually historical movements that we've seen in terms of the first quarter, you know, how are you sort of looking at some of the returns that we've seen in the first quarter, you know, re- reflecting sort of back over the past three months, what's, what actually has occurred and how you're looking at this going forward in terms of a risk aspect? Yeah, hey, thank you, Leslie, and you know, always good to be back with you. Um, yeah, no, the first quarter obviously is, is a very, very difficult quarter for fixed income, as we know. Interest rates have risen, um, and it's amazing how quickly sentiment changed. You know, we went from the consensus being two to three rate hikes this year to now like eight rate hikes this year. Um, so whenever that happens within a three month period of time, with yields as low as they were it's going to cause some damage within the fixed income markets. But I think what we also have to do is, is think about this as a, as a little bit of a reset in terms of where valuations and where values actually are in the markets. So we've gone from thinking that the Fed was going to hike rates two times to now pricing in that the Fed is going to hike rates eight times this year and another two times um, in, in 2023. I think what we can probably say with reasonable comfort is that we're at least 75 to 80% of the way through the higher rate expectations. So the pain that we've taken in the first quarter, I think that large dose of pain that's been out there is largely behind us. And what we have to start thinking about is how we start to look at the next 9 to 12 to 18 months. And a lot of that is going to depend on or be dependent on, I should say more correctly, what you think the path of, obviously, inflation is going to be, but then ultimately what the path of of, of Fed policy is going to be. And I think one of the things that we have to recognize and fully understand right now is that something monumental has changed in the last week and a half. And that's been the Fed's communication that they're just moving from very accommodative policies to neutral and still very concerned about the labor market. So now the Fed, by by their publication of their recent dot plot, their forecasts, is now moving to a tighter policy, meaning that their their policy rate at 2.8% for 2023 and, and 2024 is greater than their expected inflation rate in 2024, which is 2.3%. So the point is, is that Essentially, the Fed is willing to hike interest rates beyond the expected inflation rate, and the comments that they've made along with that is that they believe the labor market's strong and the economy's strong, which means that they're not concerned about economic growth. They're not even concerned as much about the unemployment rate. 
they are willing to risk a recession or a more significant slowing in growth in order to rein in inflation risks. Now, what that tells us at the early stages of this policy shift, and again, this is what we're seeing right now play out, is rates go up and the curve flattens. Because essentially what they're saying is we're willing to be very aggressive. They're going to front load their communication strategy. That's going to push interest rates higher. Long-term rates aren't going to rise as quickly. The curve's going to stay relatively you know, flat and potentially even invert. But what we also have to think about is over the next 12 months, the next 18 months, what fixed income returns might actually be over that period. Clearly, the last three months, you know, was the worst start to the year in fixed income, you know, in, you know, in, in over the last 50 years. So this is a very, very difficult time. But, um, but, you know, I think it's also time to look forward a little bit and see where some of the value might be and, and see how we can, you know, pick fixed income to be part of a, part of a duress by portfolio. So, so when we think about, let's, let's just focus on the Fed for a second, a few points that you made, because when I, from, from, for UBS's standpoint, I mean, we believe that there could be a 50 hike in May, <clears throat> almost had a 50 hike in June. You know, we know that there's some other, uh, cell site firms out there that think 50, 50, 50, you know, four consecutive times. What is it that you think is baked in? And how exactly do you view, like, the Fed funds rate at the end of the year in terms of that variance of what the market is anticipating and how that might influence rates? Yeah, so I, I think it's a good question, Leslie, because what what the markets are fully expecting is is is, is eight rate hikes, um, you know, eight twenty five basis point, the equivalent of eight twenty five basis point rate hikes, you know, at least at least that amount. So to get the Fed funds rate at least to two percent, if not between two and two and a half percent, depending on how aggressive um, you know people want to be with their with their overall forecasts. So when we look at the markets and we look at the, some of the forward markets and see what the forward expectations are for rates, that you know, rate hike, eight, eight rate hikes this year is largely is is largely baked in. Uh, I think a fifty basis point rate hike in in May and fifty basis points in June is largely expected, and I also think it's warranted. I, I think the Fed is right to do it because essentially. What the markets are telling the Fed is that they're behind the curve in that it might be worse for them to allow inflation uh, risks to run out of control versus containing it now. And the reason I say that, and this is what, and this is what I think is very, very interesting, is that as hawkish as we're talking about the Fed being, once Powell came out and said, you know, a week from last Monday ago, that he's comfortable with a 50 basis point rate hike in May and then everybody changed their forecast, something very interesting happened. The equity markets rallied and credit spread started to narrow. And, and I think what the markets are basically saying is they would prefer that the Fed acts aggressively sooner in order to rein in inflation risks because that is going to make sure that the Fed doesn't have to hike more aggressively later. So it's probably, conversely, it's more positive for riskier assets, whether it's credit spreads, high yield, potentially even equities, um, if the Fed addresses this inflation risk today and keeps inflation expectations anchored as opposed to being slow and behind the curve and allowing inflation expectations to become unanchored, which means that they have to hike rates faster later, which means that you risk a more severe recession down the road. So do, would you think that then with that scenario, do you think it's plausible or what probability would you put on 
let's just say going to uh, having a three and a quarter in, in uh, 2023 or near a three and a half. Is that anywhere in the cards or do you think it's all baked in now and therefore, you know, it might be, you know, one in 23 versus three or four? Yeah. So I think um, it, it might be, it, it might be the way that we're looking at it is that if they front load their strategy, you might get two more rate hikes in, in 2023. But this is all highly contingent on on, on inflation and, and inflation expectations. So, so one of the things that we know is taking place right now is that the Fed expects inflation obviously to come down. This is what you know, the year-over-year base effects that that's supposed to happen. But now with the war between Russia and Ukraine, we have another supply-side shock with energy prices and also with food prices. And so that means headline inflation may stay higher for longer than what the Fed was comfortable with. So what we need to see, and this is a metric that we all have to follow, is month-over-month CPI has to start printing 0.3 or 0.4. It can't keep printing at 0.5. Because 0.5 annualizes to a 6% inflation rate. 0.3, 0.4 annualizes to somewhere, call it between three and a half and four and a half percent, let's say, inflation. And that's within the Fed's target expectation for, um, for, for inflation. So what I would say is that if the Fed sees that they're making progress between now and September, then the Fed, we can say, okay, you know, maybe a softer landing, maybe one or two more hikes in 2023 and everything will be okay. If they don't see it by September, then I think we could start to look for policy rates that may go between three and three and a half percent. And I think that's when you start to really break things in, in, in the markets. And that's where, you know, you could have a default cycle, you could have wider spreads, obviously weaker equities, basically a, a tightening of financial conditions. And why I choose September is because based on the Fed's previous approximations, they would they had expected inflation to be coming down just by based on by base effects by that time. But it also lines up with the Jackson Hole Symposium, which is the third uh, week in in August, which is where typically if there's going to be a change in policy, that's typically where these things get announced. That's been true since the global financial crisis. So if the Fed's not getting any satisfaction on inflation. Powell seems he's no longer the dovish dot. Powell has changed. He is now willing to do even more. And we have to internalize the fact that he's even willing to put the economy into a mild recession in order to rein in inflation risks. So when we think about how that sort of all transposes into, you know, interest rates and particularly the 10-year, and, and this is this is going to be a year, it's very difficult to forecast given all the, you know, the variables and all the cloudedness within some of these economic variables that we're seeing. So when we think about the ten-year rates, we went up to two and a half percent, you know, and, and when we think about the the forty-year rally that we've had and how much price appreciation has been a, a contributor of total returns, is that kind of behind us now? Would you say, and is it really going to be you know the income, like the, the, the traditional income, that's a driver of total return? I mean, do you think interest rates, particularly the ten-year, say range-bound this year? Is this is it, or is this going to be the a sort of a, a snapshot of what we saw in the first quarter of twenty-one? where we rose, you know, 80, 90 basis points in the first quarter, but that was the high of the year. Yeah, no, that, that, you know, I think that's an interesting analog because you're right. You know, we reached March 31st was the highest yield in, in 2021 for the 10-year note, and then after that we started to go down yield. I would say that um, as long as 
inflation behaves in a way that the Fed is, is happy with, then I think a 2.5% tenure note, what we've seen, is probably, uh, we're going to be, you know, plus or minus around that range. We're going to be, call it 220 to, you know, 250, 260, somewhere in there. I think that would be a, a workable range, you know, for the Fed, uh, or, or for, or for my expectations, at least not for the Fed. However, if you start to get, um, if, if these inflation prints don't behave themselves and don't, don't show that the Fed is making progress the way that it thought that it was going to be, then I think that you could see another leg higher, probably a final leg higher in 10 year yields that could get 10 year yields up towards about 3%. And, and that would still put, and that would probably put the two year note at, you know, three and a quarter to, you know, even three and a half. So you could have an inverted yield curve at that point. And then I would not be, you know, and that's, and that would be 20, this is a 2023 event. And then I would not be surprised to see, um, you know, a, a, a decent recession in 2024. And, you know, one of the, one of the things we touched upon, which I really, which I found incredibly interesting is that, when we think about credit spreads, right, when we look at, say, just like the BAMO high yield index, you know, that, you know, on March 15th was sitting at about a 423, and, you know, this morning is, is about, you know, open to like a 321. So we've had a, you know, tremendous amount of spread compression since the Fed meeting. You know, you pointed out the equity performance. And I'm just curious, does, does this, you know, short-term loosening of financial conditions that we've seen over the past couple of weeks, do you think that that is, for the Fed? I mean, given that, you know, one of the things that Powell mentioned was, you know, tightening financial conditions substantially. Um, what do you think? Do you think that gives them a better measure to sort of move more aggressively sooner? Or how would you, how do you view, like, overall what this will be in terms of not only relative value of credit, but how the Fed might take the action because risk assets have done so well since yeah. the Fed meeting? So the way that I always think about this is through the construct of financial conditions. And financial conditions is, it's basically, it's an index. And this is something that the Fed uses and the Fed refers to it. And it's an index that's comprised of short-term interest rates, call that the policy rate, intermediate-term interest rates, um, the credit spreads, uh, equities, and the trade-weighted value of the dollar. Those are the five components that make up a financial conditions index. Now, what's always important to ask within an index is, well, what are the weightings? And the biggest weightings within financial conditions, whether it's tight or easy, is the interest rate piece and it's the credit piece. So while equity markets doing well is something that's out there, or if they do poorly, you know, that's, that's certainly something to pay attention to. What the Fed pays attention to the most is the credit markets. And it's also the interest rate markets because with the way that they view it is that it's the cost of credit and the accessibility of credit is what is most correlated to economic growth over the long run and also controls inflation. It's basically the leverage in the economy. So with credit spreads doing exactly what you said, which is, you know, I was amazed by that as well, Leslie, which is, you know, high yield spreads are 425. Today, they're 100 basis points, you know, tighter than that. Investment grade spreads are significantly tighter than where they were a few weeks ago as well. So the Fed is seeing this as, wow, financial conditions are actually pretty easy. Interest rates have gone up, but they seem to be stabilizing around these levels. Equity markets have rebounded. So the Fed is saying, well, gosh, you know, I, you know, here we are talking as hawkish as we possibly can at this point, and financial conditions are still relatively easy. That's okay as long as inflation starts to come down. But if inflation doesn't, what that tells the Fed and what it signals to the Fed 
is that they have a lot more room to become a lot more aggressive without doing substantial harm to uh, financial conditions or the broader economy. And that is, that's the thing that we have to watch out for because, you know, when we're talking about a 50 basis point rate hike in May and a 50 basis point rate hike in June on the follow, you know, that, that could just be for starters if, if financial conditions stay relatively easy. So we do need to see the markets respond to some of this, but more importantly, we need to see inflation effectively start to respond to this as well. So when just just with everything that was said, this is a great conversation. So with everything that we discussed, like what do you what where do you see rent relative value? You know, where are you currently positioned for the next say six months, year, um, over, over the rest of twenty two? Yeah. So 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 for right now, I, I think that you know between let me go from between now and September first, since I highlighted that date because I think that's going to be a pivotal point for you know for the markets. But even over the next twelve months. Um, we get this question a lot. Is now the time to extend duration? Or is this the peak in yields? You know, where should I be moving to? Um, and what I would say is that the three-year point on the curve looks the most attractive to us as far as a duration in, in a portfolio. Um, and we can, we can look at that in a lot of different ways. So, for example, if we're looking at non-agency mortgage markets, um, asset-backed securities, consumer credit-related Assets, even looking in the triple B, um, you know, space in terms of credit. So not going, you know, down, really way down in credit quality. We're getting very, very nice yields at that three year point on the curve within those products. Um, where if you look at the slope of, of the yield curve, that's kind of the peak, the three year point. Like the three year yield is almost the equivalent of, of the 10 year yield today, right? You know, so, 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 so you're getting a, a good yield but you're not taking on too much duration risk. So if yields continue to move higher, um, yes, you know, all yields will rise, but, um, but, but you're not going to get hurt as bad in, in the three year. And three years is enough maturity that, like I said, I would be expecting a, a more significant slowdown in late 23, 24, that, you know, at that point, that's going to be a two year or a one year piece of paper that's actually going to, um, at least preserve some, you know, you know, some, some value. Um, so, so that's a sector that we're looking at a lot. The other is if we start to think about, um, uh, you know, short duration, high quality credit, IG credit, that's another, that's another area that, you know, that, that we like to think about, um, just in terms of a quality core part of a fixed income portfolio, but we can't forget about bank loans, bank loans for us, you know, senior secured, um, uh, you know, you know, lending, it yields are good. It floats. Um, you know, this is an area, th- th- this is a market that I think is actually going to be, you know, a good mixture of defense and offense where you're going to get paid, you get some yield, you get some return, you're, you're, you're senior secured in the capital structure. So you're not taking a lot of excessive credit risk and you're not taking a lot of long duration risk on that either. You're still getting some income. So really what I'm trying to look at is to try to find ways to get yield, to get income to participate in what the markets have given us is, you know, this rise in yield and the rise in forward rates, which a lot of these products are going to be based off of in terms of priced off of, but also, you know, have a cushion if I'm wrong, if I'm, you know, if rates continue to move higher, um, that we don't really get hurt so that our upside capture is better than our downside capture. The last thing I'm going to say, and, and this is not for everybody, but we also have to start to think about thinking about, looking at emerging markets, um, particularly in the local space. 
many of these central banks have hiked rates aggressively, and since the war between you know, Russia and Ukraine um, and the inflation that we've seen, they've hiked rates even more so. So these these are bond markets with um, really you know high and hiking central banks. Central banks have been tightening for over a year now, and with high real rates. Um, these are areas that we think that, you know, it shouldn't be a zero weighting in your portfolio. It shouldn't be a very high weighting in your portfolio. But these are areas where selectively we can start nibbling. So the last thing I'll, I'll, I'll comment on is just style. Um, we think that actively managed portfolios um, are, are things to uh, look at within fixed income so that the manager has a flexibility to do and, and toggle between all these things that I'm talking about and isn't fixed to like a long duration uh, portfolio, long duration traditional portfolio, but is able to be somewhat flexible and manage their duration and be very selective about what assets they want to buy in this particular environment. Because I think asset selection is going to be absolutely critical. Right, actually, there you mentioned they mentioned EM because I was going to ask you about that. And another thing I just wanted, I want your quick opinion on as well, particularly when we talk about things like short end corporates that you know are, are fairly susceptible to a lot of the funding rate distress that we saw, um, you know, a month ago or not even a month ago, March sixth or seventh. Do you think that funding stress right now is is mainly behind us, or how do you look at that going forward? I think it's a great question, and I think that it's mainly behind us. And I couldn't have said that um, three weeks ago because we just didn't know, right? You know, when the sanctions came and the swift sanctions came, this was everybody's top fear. This is the first thing I looked at, you know, back in February was, you know, what are the repo markets doing? Uh, you know, what's the commercial paper markets doing? How are money markets functioning? And there was a lot of anxiety and fear around that. And so far, what we've seen is that uh, you know, people have access to funding. It might be a little bit more expensive today than what it was before, but the markets are open. It's there. And as time has gone by, that those fears have started to, to come down. So my primary risk right now is not one of a financial crisis led by um, like a, a large spike in demand for dollars or a liquidity crisis or some type of... Um, funding or counterparty related uh, risk. Those were, if we were having this call on March 1st, that, that's all I would have talked about as, as a big potential risk. And what I would have said then, and what I did say then, was it's going to take a few weeks. It's going to take three weeks or so before we know if this is actually going to manifest or not. But today, you know, we're not sure. Now, at the end of March, it, I feel a little more comfortable in saying that the, the, the largest part of that risk is now behind us. And one final question. Do you think there's going to be any um, surprise with the April 6th minutes? Any surprise to the marketplace with the FOMC minutes? The, the only way to surprise the markets is that if it was more dovish, because the markets are so expecting, you know, a hawkish commentary from, um, you know, from the Fed that um, they can only surprise people to the, you know, to the dub side. So I think that it's pretty much baked in the cake, you know, that it seems like a 50 basis point rate move is, is what's coming next. Um, also, they're going to talk about uh, quantitative tightening, or, you know, the shrinking of the balance sheet um, and controlling the balance sheet, which is probably coming at the May 4th FOMC meeting. Um, so everybody's going to be looking for that in the minutes because uh, Powell did say that this was discussed. And since it was discussed, it should be in the minutes. And that should give us the biggest lead on to what the Fed, the big action by the Fed 
to me is not 50 basis points hike. I think that's expected. I think the big action is going to be what they announce about the balance sheet and, and quantitative tighten, and it's going to start, you know, on May 4th. That's right. All right, Jim, thanks so much. This has been really a, a great conversation, and as always, you know, I, I appreciate your time and, and your insights and just discussing with, you know, UBS, RFAs, and clients, just your current allocation, and, and thanks, Jim. I appreciate it. Thank you. UBS Chief Investment Office's investment views are prepared and published by the Global Wealth Management Business of UBS AG or its affiliates. The views and opinions expressed in this material by external guest speakers are those of the author, speaker, and are not those of UBS, its subsidiaries, or affiliates. Accordingly, UBS does not accept any liability over the content of this material or any claims, losses, or damages arising from the use or reliance of all or any part thereof. This material has no regard to the specific investment objectives, financial situation, or particular needs of any specific recipient, and published for informational purposes only. For a full legal disclaimer applicable to the independent investment views produced by UBS, please visit our website at ubs.com forward slash CIO disclaimer.